Today's scripture reading is from Jonah 3, verses 4 through 10. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Good job. Thanks, Jessica, for the reading of God's true word this morning. And good morning. Just thank you. Thank you. Can always count on John Stuther to add a little fun to the day. You know what I mean? Thanks, John. But you know, I have a, I can't, well, first, I can't think of a better way to spend my birthday than here in the house of the Lord, my church family. And I have a view of birthdays for me. They're good. I'm grateful to be here. We serve a good God, don't we? We do. Looking forward to studying Jonah with you this morning, but first there's something that uh, I would guess probably most of you don't know about me, and it's this. I cut my own hair. I know it's kind of weird. You're like, Paul, where are you going with this? But I cut my own hair. I've been doing it for a number of years now. And, uh, you know, I got a razor. It's got the adjustments to put a mirror in one hand and, and then a little clip on the top. And good to go. 20 minutes later, it's free. I do it all the time. I like to keep it nice and high and tight. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, Paul, you, you cut your own hair because that looks really good. You're looking good up there. I know that's what you're thinking, right? But it's also why uh, my hairstyle never changes. But that hasn't always been the case. I mean, I went through my hairstyles when I was younger, and here's some pictures to prove it. Hey, yeah, okay, there we go. And uh, that's the Chia Pet look. And that's, well, hey, I don't know what that is, but uh, okay. Now, now, maybe some of you have had some different hairstyles over the years, but I bet there's one thing that everybody's had, at least one haircut, right? Come on, everybody's had at least one haircut. And what's the first thing that happens after the barber's done cutting your hair? He or she removes that little cape that's around you. They take their little brush and they brush off all those little hairs. Hopefully they do. Now, I've experienced where that's not happened. As a matter of fact, there's been times where I've had a lot of hairs left on my body, on my neck, on my ears, on my shoulders, on my arms. And that's just a little itchy, isn't it? You throw in a little dirt, a little dust, a little sweat, and it's really itchy and it's kind of gross. And I see some of you right now, you're kind of going like this, and you're getting a little squirmish and you're uh, squirming around in your seats. Why do I bring up all this? Because that's how it would have felt to be a, a Ninevite in Jonah chapter 3, in what we're studying today. 
That's how it would have felt. As a matter of fact, hopefully you got some burlap on your way in. And I never realized it was going to be as messy as it is, but hopefully you got some burlap. This is sackcloth for the day. And I hope you grab some. If you would just grab that in your hand, hold it up if you would, please, because we're going to be referring to it throughout today's service. If you didn't get some, I think we can have somebody run around and give you a piece or run back to the baskets and grab one. But you can feel this. It's kind of coarse, isn't it? As a matter of fact, why don't you just rub this uh, below your arm, on the underside of your arm where it's kind of tender. You, you feel that. It's coarse. It's kind of itchy, scratchy. Rub it on your neck a little bit. And you go. I've been doing this all week, and I, I turned out just fine. There's nothing wrong with me, so you'll be fine. But you can see what I'm talking about. Wearing this, putting on sackcloth and, and under the hot sun and sitting in dust, not very comfy, I don't think. You know what it'd feel like? It'd feel like being covered in hair and sitting in dirt. Why on earth do we see people in the Old Testament over and over covering themselves with sackcloth? As a matter of fact, if you did your observations this past week, you probably noticed that sackcloth is used three times. We see that word three times in the passage that we're studying today. Why sackcloth? Why did the Ninevites voluntarily put on sackcloth? And even, they even put it on their animals, not only did they volunteer to do this, but it seems like the Ninevites, they embraced putting on sackcloth and sitting in dust. Why in the world would they do that? It seems kind of yucky and scritchy. Now, that's the question. That's the problem we're going to be dealing with today. <laughs> Why sackcloth and dust? So if you haven't already, open your Bibles, your scripture journals to Jonah. Chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 10. As we unpack this question, this problem, why sackcloth and dust? Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. But before we jump into God's word, would you join me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come here today as your people, desperate to hear a word from you. Holy Spirit, would you fill this room? Would you speak today through your holy word? And I also, Lord, my heart has been breaking this week for the city of Billings, for our community. Lord, I pray for all those who have been touched by the violence, for those families that are grieving. I pray for those young people who feel that there is just no hope and they're only surrounded by darkness. I pray for a revival in the city of Billings. And if it starts here today, so be it. This is your church, you're our king, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, besides seeing sackcloth mentioned three times, there's some other observations I made that I want to share with you. They should be in your worship guides. They're on the screen. You may have made many more than what you see. There's a lot in this passage, but these are the ones we'll focus on today. Like the word relent, it's used twice. We'll talk about that. God is mentioned four times. His Hebrew name is in Hebrew, that's Elohim. Certainly, he's central to the passage. We'll also see that there's two proclamations made. There's two, two messages that are given, one by Jonah and one by the king of Nineveh. Part of the, the king's message, we see some compare and contrast in there. There's a couple do not lets and a few lets. Those are verses 7 and 8. And then there's a, I believe it's a pretty profound two-word question that the king asks in the beginning of verse 9 because he says, who knows? Who knows? We'll talk about that as well. Now, as I work through this passage, for me, it broke down nicely into three chunks. And that's how it's broke down in your worship guide. And you'll see the headings for each one. Verse 4, we see Jonah's proclamation, the message she has. 
He gives the Ninevites the message. And as they receive the message, when they hear it, well, they repented. That's verses 5 through 9. And after they repented, we find that God relented. He relented. It helps understand that there's a nice flow to these verses. Why don't you say those three with me, if you would? The message, they repented, he relented. One more time. The message, they repented, he relented. Good. Well, let's start with the message there in verse 4. But before we do, it's always good to build a little context and do a refresher of what we talked about last week. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, what we, what we discussed and what we saw happening in those verses is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You may remember this from last week. In a sense, Jonah gets a second chance, and God wants to work through Jonah to give a second chance to the Ninevites as well. That was the thrust of the passage, second chances. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've all been given a second chance, haven't we? And because we have, we should be willing to extend second chances to others. And so the question, the challenge last week was this, who is God calling you to extend a second chance to in your life? Who are your Ninevites? I hope you wrestled with that this past week, and I hope you prayerfully took some steps of obedience around that question and that challenge. Jonah did. The second time the word of the Lord comes to him, he obeys, and he goes to what's described as a very large city. We see this at the end of verse 3. And it would take Jonah three days to go through it. That's the final thing from our passage last week. It's interesting, what is up with this large city? Because we're told at the end of chapter 4, we'll see this in a few weeks, that there's 120,000 souls in it that don't know their left hand from their right. Now, scholars are a little split on, on what this means. 120,000 people who don't know their left from their right. Some think that it could indicate children who haven't learned their left from their right yet, and it's possible. Others believe, and this is where I land, is that it represents the general population of Nineveh. 120,000 people who are so spiritually bankrupt, in essence, they don't know their left from their right. That's where I land. Plus, in the ancient world, 120,000 people, that's a big city. I noticed in 2021 that the population of the city of Billings was 117,400 people. I would think it's fair to say probably today that the population in Billings may be 120,000 plus. Pretty big certainly in the ancient world standards. But yet, it wouldn't take three days to walk through the city of Billings, right? I mean, even if you started way on the West End and you stopped downtown and you went up to the Heights, a day maybe, I mean, a long day. So what's the deal with three days? Why would it take Jonah three days? Well, maybe the city was spread out and he had to, camp, you know, he had to go throughout the, the surrounding area, like going through the county. Perhaps it was customary for visiting emissaries to spend three days in the city. Or maybe, and again, this is where I would land, maybe it would just take them that long to canvas the city of Nineveh, to visit each municipality. It'd kind of be like coming to Billings and preaching for a day on the West End, a day downtown, and a, and a day in the Heights. That's kind of how I would view it. Now, that brings us to today's text. And what we find is that here in verse 4, Jonah goes a day's worth of travel into the city. That's it. That's it. And he begins to preach the message. It's like he's just warming up. It's like he just goes to downtown Billings and begins to preach the message. He begins to give the message. And that word begin began there in verse 4 in Hebrew. It means to let loose. Ah. Jonah, he goes a day's worth into the city of Nineveh, and he begins to let it fly, and the message is this, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's eight words. It's five in Hebrew. 
I don't know about you, but that's not all that inspiring to me. And that's what he goes, and he lets it fly. And I don't know if he's kind of, he's there in downtown Nineveh, and he's surrounded by a group of people, or he's walking around saying things like, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days, it'll be overthrown. I, whatever it is, I mean, not really all that inspiring, right? Are you inspired by that? Would you be? But there's some things we need to look at about this short message Starting with the number 40, 40 days, 40. We see 40 a lot in the scriptures, don't we? Genesis chapter 7. The Lord sent the rains upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights to flood it. The Israelites, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Acts chapter 1, we find that Jesus, there's 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. You see, for these Ninevites, the number 40 represented mercy. Because Jonah's message isn't today Nineveh will be overthrown. Oh, no. The number 40 for these Ninevites indicates that maybe God will extend his mercy to them. Perhaps Yahweh would be willing to give them a second chance. In addition to that, we get to the word overthrown at the end of that proclamation at the end of that message. And the over, word overthrown in Hebrew has a dual meaning. First, it means what you may think and what the Ninevites would have expected it to mean, and that's to be overturned, to be destroyed, to be leveled. We find the very same word in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what happened to them? Wiped out. And I believe, <laughs> secretly, that's exactly what Jonah is hoping will happen to the Ninevites, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jonah also knows this. There's another meaning to that word overthrown. Oh, yes, he would have understood this. Because it also means to turn around. To turn around. So Jonah would have understood that perhaps God's going to extend mercy to these Ninevites and that they would turn around and turn back to him. I don't believe there's any mistake. There's no accident that that word is used as a part of this message. This is the message from God delivered through Jonah to the Ninevites for such a time as that, for such a time as that in their history. And let me explain what I mean by that, for such a time as that in their history. You see, there were at least four Assyrian kings that ruled in Nineveh during Jonah's lifetime. And the king of Nineveh that I believe is being referenced here in the book of Jonah is King Asserdan III. Now you may be thinking, okay, what's the big deal? King Asserdan III. Well, here's the big deal. There were three big events that took place during King Asserdan III's reign. Uh, two of them were severe famines, and these are documented in the historical Assyrian annals. And the first severe famine took place 765 B.C. The second one was 759 B.C. In the middle of that, there's something else that took place that's documented and it was June 15th, there was a total solar eclipse. Now, think about modern-day people. If we had some severe famines, that would rattle us. That would shake us a little bit, right? That would be enough. It'd make us a little bit on edge. Now, for the people in the ancient world, you combine that with a solar eclipse, what they really didn't understand was going on, they perceived that as divine supernatural judgment that was coming upon them. 
Give me a little nod if you're with me. You tracking? Okay, good. I'm not dying on a hill for this, but I think it's important for us to look back in history and see what was taking place as we study God's Word. And I believe... I believe that God's Holy Spirit was on the move. His Spirit was on the move among the Ninevites and that we have Jonah come at just the right time, all according to God's sovereign divine timing. Jonah shows up in whatever condition he is and he delivers a message, the exact message that those people need to hear and I believe it happened after those events. Let me ask you something. Is our God awesome? Is our God awesome? You know, when I look at all this, you know what this is for me? It's another faith builder for me. That's what this is. And there's something else I want to, message, I want to mention about this message. It's eight words. Pretty simple. Not all that inspiring like I said earlier, right? You know what? Check this out. What if I showed up here on a Sunday morning, gave an eight-word message, and went back and plopped in my seat? I, don't you say amen right now. I saw that, Jim Yearly. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Come on, Jonah, what's the deal? I find encouragement in this. Because if God's preparing the heart of somebody in our life, all we got to do is trust and obey. He'll tell us what to say. And it's not about how many words we use, how eloquent we are, how persuasive we can be. No, God does the saving of people. Not us. But he chooses to work through us. What a privilege. So yes, we should be prepared. And our, our message may be as simple as this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. The message he gives us to share with our lost neighbors, to share with our lost friends and coworkers may be as simple as this. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins. He's alive today. He's my friend. He's my king. Let's study the Bible together and look at how he lived and what he taught. You know what? I bet if every Christian in Billings were willing to proclaim that kind of message to non-believers, I bet there'd be a revival in the city. And that's exactly what took place in Nineveh. I'd say the largest, most profound, most incredible, stupendous revival in history. Why? Because we're told that every single one of them believed the eight-word message delivered by Jonah in one single day. All of them believed what? They believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. I wouldn't either, <laughs> especially depending how he looked. They believed God. They believed what God had to say. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's that same power that's at work today. And then we see verses 5 through 9, what did the Ninevites do? Well, they repented. That's the next category. That's the next heading to what we're studying. They repented. They repented. And certainly repentance is a theme that we see throughout Jonah. Clearly it is here in Jonah chapter 3. And it began with the people from the least to the greatest. And this is where we see that they fasted and they put on sackcloth and here is the first mention of sackcloth. But this isn't the first mention of sackcloth, obviously, in the Scriptures. Genesis 37, 34, we read, Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. You see, fasting and sackcloth were signs of grief, humility, penitence. They were hallmarks of what true repentance looked like. 
And that sackcloth, that little bit of sackcloth that you got, where did I put it? Oh, I threw it down here. It's rough. It's coarse. Oftentimes it was made of goat's or camel's hair. And you can imagine, like we talked about earlier, having that on all day in the hot sun, it'd be itchy, it'd be scratchy. It'd feel like you're covered in little hair sitting in the dirt. But the people did that to humble themselves before God and to seek him. And it was their way of foregoing and neglecting earthly and worldly pleasures and comforts. And like I mentioned earlier, this revival began with the people, from least to the greatest. And that's how revivals start, don't they? There wasn't an edict, there wasn't a command, there wasn't a, a proclamation from the king that began this. No, it was the work of the Spirit of God among the people. That's how revivals start. His Spirit's at work and the people are hungry for his word. Well, eventually Jonah's message reaches the king. Perhaps it's that same day, it seems to be. That would be the case. Reaches the king and... <laughs> I love what the king does here because he gets up and he gets off his throne. You know what I found interesting about this? The first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, this prophet of God, he gets up too and he runs the wrong way. Remember that? He's fleeing to Tarshish. The first time the word of the Lord comes to this pagan king of Nineveh, this place full of wicked evil, violence. What's the king do? He gets up to, but he gets off his throne. You know, that's where it begins for all of us to get off our high horse. Recognize we're not all that. Begins for all of us to get off our throne and recognize there's only one true king on the throne. Amen? That's where it starts. Well, after the king gets off his throne, he takes off his royal robe. Would have been expensive. I can imagine maybe he tore it like Jacob did in Genesis 37. He tears that expensive clothing and he puts on sackcloth and he sits in the dust. What an act of humility. Now, I really, really, truly considered wearing a burlap sack today. Oh, I came close. Trust me. I talked to Jen and my wife about this. And we figured probably not a great idea. Might not go very well. And the other thing I know, I know I'm a bit of a trendsetter. All y'all going to start cutting your own hair now. And I was afraid you'd show up next Sunday wearing burlap sacks and we didn't want that to happen. So you just got a little piece of burlap today. But... As I thought about wearing sackcloth, and, and this is what we're studying here in Jonah chapter 3, I was kind of reminded of something that took place during the Great Depression. Some of you may know this. Maybe you've heard this from your parents, your grandparents. It was a tough time. It was, it was a pretty tough time uh, during the 20s and 30s, and anything people could get their hands on, they kept, right? Including flour sacks and feed sacks. Yeah, I can hear somebody saying amen to that. All right. But what would happen is, well... They would make dresses and shirts out of flour sacks and feed sacks. They used them. Matter of fact, here's a couple pictures to show you. There's some dresses, and they're pretty proud of their flour sacks. Check that out. Yeah. Maybe they'll make a comeback. Then I think uh, we got a picture of a guy wearing one as a shirt. As I thought about the Ninevites and the king wearing sackcloth, I was kind of reminded of what took place in the Great Depression era. Now, clearly, that's a different material. But you know what? People that showed up in flour sacks and feed sacks, it was kind of humbling. And other people looked at them, and they realized, they're poor. They're impoverished. Now, think about the king himself putting on sackcloth. He's humbling himself to the place where the rest of the people are. Maybe even lower because he sits in dust. 
That's humility. And then the king and his nobles, they make a proclamation. We get to the king's message. This is where we see some of those do not lets and those lets. Really what the king is doing is he's taking what the people are already participating in and he's adding another layer. He's making it more extreme because he says, not only do not let people eat, but do not let them taste anything or drink anything and don't let the animals do that either. He says, not only let people wear sackcloth, but let the animals wear sackcloth too. And I'm like, what's up with the poor animals? They're just kind of innocent bystanders. Why do they not have to eat, drink, or taste anything and have to wear sackcloth? Maybe you wondered that too. Well, it might have been their custom. Perhaps they decorated their animals, and as a part of that, if they're all going to wear sackcloth, their animals are going to do that too. Maybe part of the judgment they thought that might be coming would involve their animals, so they put them in sackcloth. Whatever the case, what we have here is a picture of the Ninevites being pretty desperate. I mean, they're desperate, aren't they? Why? Because I think they begin to understand the seriousness of their sin. I, I, I think that they come face to face with their wickedness, their depravity, their violence, and their evil ways, and I think it breaks them. I think it begins to break them. And that's why the king says, let everyone, here's another let, let everyone cry out to God. Let everyone cry out to Elohim. He's telling everybody to start praying. You know, sackcloth, fasting, dust, coarse praying, these are very good things, right? But if they're not accompanied by a change in behavior, some action, it's just empty. So the king doesn't stop there. The final let that he says is, let everyone turn from their evil ways and their violence. The literal translation of that in Hebrew would go something like this. Let everyone stop walking down the pathway of evil, the footpath of evil that you're on every day, and let everyone stop the violence that's in your hands. And they did. They responded. They did. And I personally can't think of a more beautiful picture of repentance and of a revival. I can't than what we see here in Jonah chapter 3 with the Ninevites. If you look back in history, I believe every major revival, really every revival that we find is accompanied by the exact ingredients that we find here in Jonah chapter 3. First and foremost, the Spirit of God is at work. There's a hunger among people for his word, for his truth. People are... <laughs> come face to face with their sin and they're broken by it and it leads to repentance, fasting, humility, a turning back to God and a striving after holiness. You know, many would say the last time that we had a revival here in the United States was during the 60s and 70s. And that's a lot of times referred to as the Jesus movement. I think there was a movie, well, I know there was a movie made not long ago that kind of captured some of what happened during that time. But it was a, it was a time in our, our country's history that was pretty tumultuous. I mean, we were on the brink of nuclear war with Russia. Students, and I remember, I remember this, maybe some of you do too, we did air raid drills underneath our desks. The Cuban Missile Crisis was taking place. During those years, we had a president that was assassinated, JFK, and not long after that, his brother Robert was. There was another individual assassinated during those couple decades, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. We were knee-deep in the Vietnam War. 
The Watergate scandal was upon us. The mantra of the day, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But it was in the midst of that that God got a hold of a lot of people's hearts. Because the spirit was on the move. People were hungry for truth because they weren't finding it in that, not that mantra, but in the word of God. And they repented. They, in a way, they put on sackcloth, got off their high horse, fasted, and prayed, striving after God, turning to him, and striving after holiness. That's called a revival. It was really the height of the Billy Graham crusades during those years too, and I still love watching those on TV. I bet some of you do too. And you know what else happened in 1962? Check this out. The evangelical church started. The church that we're, the, the denomination that we're a part of today, Faith Evangelical Church. Pretty cool, huh? Thank you, Lord. You may have heard of another type of revival, another uh, revival at a different location called Asbury University. Something like that happened not long ago. And for those who were there, witnesses of that, said that the students after chapel, they stayed, they continued to worship God. They were reciting God's word from memory, reading God's word. They were broken by their sin. Strongholds were broken. They fasted, they prayed, they turned to God and strove after holiness. That's called a revival. That's what took place in Nineveh with the people and with the king. And there it's in verse 9. We see the king ask that profound question, that two-word question at the beginning of verse 9, because he says, who knows? Who knows? Who knows, says the king. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. You see, the king is holding out hope that the Ninevites and he and his people would not experience the wrath of God but experience his mercy. But the king knows that God owes them nothing. And what he says here is very similar to Joel chapter 2, 13 and 14. The prophet Joel says this, Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents, there's that word, he relents from sending calamity. And who knows? <laughs> so Joel says, who knows? He may turn and relent. We can't demand anything from God. He's not a cosmic vending machine. He owes us nothing. God doesn't rely on us or the nations, but we must wholly rely, completely rely on him. God in his sovereignty decides when to enact divine justice. And God also decides when to give divine mercy. Really, in a way, what we have happening here is that God was everything Jonah feared him to be. And God was everything the Ninevites hoped for. What Jonah protested, the Ninevites experienced because they experienced the depths of God's grace and mercy, even though they didn't deserve it. Verse 10 says this, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, he relented, and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. He relented. It's to Jonah's horror that he relented. It's to Jonah's horror that these Ninevites get a second chance, and we're going to talk about this more in the next couple of weeks, but it's to Jonah's horror that it turns out, guess what? 
Guess what? God loves the Assyrians. God loves the Ninevites too. This is convicting. I don't really, I don't want to talk about this because it's convicting because you know what? There's people in my life that I say, they don't deserve the love, the mercy, the grace of God. No way. I have Ninevites. I've had Ninevites in my life. This is convicting. It's kind of like that old statement. Grace for me, but none for thee. But as for the Ninevites, God relented. And they experienced his grace. Why? What we see in verse 10 says, He saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. They humbled themselves. God saw the do not lets, the fasting. He saw the lets putting on sackcloth of them and their animals. He saw the lets of them praying. He heard their prayers. He saw them turn from their evil ways and their violence. And so what did God do? He turned. He turned. Instead of destruction, he allowed them to experience his divine mercy. He relented. And there's a deep theological question that occurs, I believe, right here. And I wrote it off to the side in my, in my scripture journal. And the question is this, does God change his mind? God changed his mind. We could talk about this one for a long time. But I, I just want to give the simple answer because the simple answer is no, he doesn't. Not in the way that we think of changing our minds because God's not fickle. Not at all. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That's what the Bible says. But yet in the midst of that, he gives us free will. I know we've talked about this, but it's, a, it's a, another central theme here in Jonah. He gives us free will. We have the option to obey him or disobey him. You can't read Jonah and say that's not the case, right? And how we live our lives, lives of obedience or disobedience, is going to have consequences and influence, right? Really, how we live our lives is going to be an indication of a saving faith or a false faith. We talked about this in James. But yet in the midst of our free will... God's completely sovereign. It takes nothing away from his sovereignty, his ability to be in control. To me, in my mind, in my finite mind, it only makes him more sovereign if that could even happen. Because his will will be done. His kingdom will come. It will be done as it is in heaven. And how it all works? Well, like the song we sung earlier says, I'm not skilled to understand. I don't know. He's infinite. I'm finite. And I'm glad he's God and I'm not. But you know what? One thing we know for sure. He keeps his promise consistently, consistently. And his character never changes. Never changes. I think a passage in the Old Testament that really helps us with what we're studying in Jonah is Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. I, didn't, I don't think this is in your worship guide, but I encourage you to write it down. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. You can check this out on your own a little later this week. But here's what these verses say. This is what God says. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, repents, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and uproot and planted... If it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. 
You see what, did you hear what that passage, you hear what God's saying there? In, in those verses in Jeremiah, we see clearly that those who are willing to genuinely repent, seek God's forgiveness and turn to him, he consistently forgives. But those who do not repent, stiff-arm God, say, I have no room in my life for you, he consistently judges. I summed it up with a statement, should be in your worship guides, and this is what it is. In his compassion, he relents to all who repent. In his compassion, he relents to all who repent. And that's what God did to the Ninevites. And let's face it, what we read in Jonah, certainly what we read in Jonah chapter 3, it all seems kind of upside down, doesn't it? I mean, it's an eight-word message by Jonah given to him by God. And he preaches it one day, and everybody in Nineveh believes it's upside down because the people believe and it goes up to the king. It's upside down because the king gets off his throne the first time he hears the word of the Lord and he humbles himself. It's upside down because of instead of being turned upside down, God turns the hearts of men and they turn to him. The Ninevites are transformed. It's all upside down, isn't it? But that's God's economy. Actually, God's economy is right side up compared to the world's economy. And there's nothing too big for our great God to do. And here's what I believe. I'm kind of looking forward to it. I think I'm going to run into some Ninevites in heaven. Yeah. I do. I kind of think I might run into about 120,000 of them. Here's what Jesus said. Listen to this. Matthew 12, 41. This is Jesus talking. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. Was the, the Ninevites' repentance genuine? I think so. Jesus said it was. <laughs> You see, I believe the repentance of the Ninevites stands as the most poignant example of a turning to righteousness by a people undeserving the mercy of God. And the closer we get to God, the closer we follow Jesus, you know what we find and what we experience? The mercy, the depths of God's grace. And we realize more and more that we don't deserve it any more than the Ninevites. And the more we experience his mercy and grace in that way, you know what it does? It drives us to our knees. It drives us to a posture of worship. It drives us to a place of repentance. There's another statement in your worship guide. It goes like this. The depths of God's grace should take us to a place of repentance, and it should. You see, repentance isn't, isn't about empty words, another ritual. It's not about some bizarre form of legalism. Repentance is more than just sin management. Repentance is a relationship. True repentance is a relationship. It's about a relationship with our king. Because so serious is sin that God himself intervened and he sent his one and only son, Jesus. 
He who knew no sin became sin so that we could be counted as the righteousness before God. One came who was better than Jonah, who had a better message than Jonah, because he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king of the universe left his heavenly throne room, and he put on skin, and he dwelt among men. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he willingly allowed himself to be overthrown because he was crucified on the cross, and that's where he died. But you know what? He overthrew sin because he rose from the grave three days later. And he's alive, he's on the throne, he's in control, and he's interceding on our behalf right now, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we, we no longer have to live controlled by sin anymore. We don't have to live in darkness because he came as the light of men and in him is the light and the darkness will never overcome it. Never. In him is life, real life, abundant life and there's no real living apart from Christ. We don't have to live feeling dirty and full of shame anymore because not only did he take our sin on the cross, he took our shame there too. He took it upon himself. Now today we can live free Washed clean, made new. You know what that's called? It's called the power of the gospel. And it's available to all who believe. Salvation is available to all who believe from the least to the greatest, including the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites in our life. And it's available for us today too. Let's pray. Thank you. Maybe there's somebody here today. All eyes closed, heads bowed. And you've been in church a long time, going through the motions, trying to earn your way to heaven, and you've never engaged in a relationship with Jesus by repenting of your sins. Maybe you're here today, and your life's just been one mess up after another, and all you can say is that your life is a mess. Well, there's many things we learn about the Ninevites but there's one thing we clearly see is that nobody's beyond the reach of God. Nobody's beyond his grace. If you're here today and you know that Jesus is calling you and you're sensing his Holy Spirit right now is convicting you, you can pray to Jesus and just say, Jesus, I am sorry. Do that right now. Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the ways I messed up. Trust me, we all have. You're not alone. You can pray to Jesus right now and tell him you're sorry. And then recognize so serious is sin that God sent Jesus to be the substitute of the judgment that we deserve. Thank Jesus for being that substitute right now. And then tell Jesus you're ready to be a follower of him and have him as your king. You can tell him that right now. Again, with heads bowed, eyes closed, if you prayed and cried out to Jesus, this morning, this afternoon, would you just slip up your hand and make eye contact with me right now? I want to celebrate with you. I want to thank God for what he's doing in your life. You can just slip up your hand. If you're online, you can let our pastor know. 
Praise the Lord. Yeah. I want you to know something. The angels in heaven celebrate every time somebody repents. God, thanks that you're in the business of saving our souls. Thanks that you sent Jesus to make that possible. We celebrate today because (laughs) you're alive, you're well, and you're at work. Thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Before you leave, if you're here and you could use prayer for anything, it's a privilege for us to pray with you, for you. If you took a step by placing your trust in Jesus today, I'd love to help you on your journey. We have pastors, myself, others here. Maybe you're here and you've been convicted and you know there's something you need to repent of in your life and you need to talk to another brother or sister in Christ. We'd love to do that with you. And uh, if we have to, we'll sit in it with you. But you know... I'm going to ask you to take that little piece of sackcloth again, if you would. Take this with you this week. Use it as a reminder because next Sunday, we're going to participate in communion together. Use this as a reminder this week to practice that rhythm of repentance. It's about a relationship. It's about daily denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. It's about becoming a fully surrendered disciple. Use this to prepare for communion together that we'll take next Sunday. And also use this as a reminder because I'm going to call the body of Christ here that we call Faithy. I'm going to call all of, us, all of us to a day of fasting this week. Now, I know that for some of you it may be unwise to physically fast, and that's okay. The Lord knows that. You can consider giving something else up, and perhaps you can only miss a meal. For the re- but for the rest of us, this Wednesday, November 8th, Uh, From sunup to sundown, and the days got a little shorter, just so you know. (laughs) But let's not eat anything from sunup to sundown. Now, you can still drink water, do that. I'm not as strict as the king of Nineveh. But when the hunger pangs come, take time to thank Jesus for all that he's done. Take time to pray for the lost, pray for your neighbors, Pray for the city of Billings. Our community needs us to be praying for it right now. And then, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Maybe we'll experience a revival in our heart. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will give us a message to share with our neighbors, a simple one about all that he's done for us. Who knows? Maybe there'll be a revival in our communities. Who knows? Maybe there'll be a revival in Billings. Who knows? God knows. Our job is to trust and obey. Our job is to live lives striving after holiness. Our job is to live lives that exemplify his kingdom. Let's get out there and do it. Love you guys. Have a great week.